Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, joined tonight by my co-host, Nick Pollock. Nick, uh, fun, fun game. It was. I didn't get to watch it until after it ended, but then I sat down and watched the whole thing in full. And yes, it was fun. Okay, so this is going to be something for me and hopefully something for uh, our listeners. But trying to watch rewatch a game on Fox is like, or that was on the Fox family of network is like nigh impossible. So did you just like DVR it or like, how did you watch it? I have YouTube TV, so I uh, automatically record. I automatically record all Penn State and Seahawks and well, the Mariners are never on there, but I automatically record all Penn State related things and Seahawks games so I can rewatch it on the normal broadcast easily. Uh, like it's should, it's a DVR, yeah. essentially. I was going to say, if you want, you can make uh, probably some pretty good money by just standing there with your cell phone for three and a half hours and then putting the entire thing on YouTube. So make, uh, you should you should consider that. That would be a nice little side hustle. I enjoy YouTube TV and I would prefer them to not kick me off of it. So I will not be doing that. Well, you can always just use a burner account on YouTube, but neither here nor there. Uh, you aren't here to uh, listen to Nick and I talk about the uh, virtues of YouTube TV. You're here to talk hear us talk about Penn State football and the Nittany Lions. Move to 2-0 and no on the 2021 season with a 44-13 to 13 win over Ball State. Um, Nick, to me, the thing that, you know, we'll break this down half and half in a few minutes, but the thing that sticks out for me is like there was no moment in this entire football game where the possibility of Penn State, forget losing, getting a scare put into them wasn't even – like there was no point where I was like, oh, you know what? Maybe Ball State's able to keep this within two scores. No, I thought this was just going to be a blowout all the way. Yeah, no, at, at- – yeah, like you said, literally at no point. I mean, to me, I'm I'm looking at the game on uh, gameonpaper.com. I remember the website this time. Uh, yeah, total EPA for Penn State, 5.72. Total EPA for Ball State, negative 5.46. And I feel like that pretty well yeah. describes what happened in this game. It just, it at no point, and to be fair, this is what I predicted exactly what happened. At no point did this game feel like it was going to slip away. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the drive chart right now, and the first four drives of the game were a three and out by Ball State, a touchdown by Penn State, a three and out by Ball State, a touchdown by Penn State. So, like, Penn State made it a point, it seemed to me, and again, we'll break it down into half and half in a second, but it seemed like Penn State, its mindset in this game was, we're going to go out, we're going to dominate this game, we are going to make sure that this one gets you know, in a comfortable place as quickly as possible. And then, you know what, we'll, we'll be in first or second gear for the remainder of the football game. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. It's I, yeah, they did exactly what I thought they were going to do in this game. I thought they were going to uh, work hard to just get the running game going and just build some momentum in that. And by doing that, I mean, they, it did look a little different first drive to second drive, but yeah, it's they immediately went out, imposed their will, got where they wanted to be, and then just kind of popped it in neutral for the rest of the time. 
Yeah, uh, Sean Clifford obviously led the day through the air for the Nittany Lions, 21 for 29, 230 yards on the ground. Penn State took a uh, pretty team approach to carving up Ball State, 48 carries, 240 yards and two scores. Noah Kane getting 20 of those carries for 69 yards and a touchdown. Sean Clifford also added one on the ground and then through the air, Jahan Dotson and Dio Johnson, who we'll talk about a little bit at the end of this podcast, uh, scored through the air, defensive side of the ball. Ball State had 295 yards of total offense. Uh, they had two turnovers. They couldn't really throw the ball. They couldn't really run the ball. And just my opinion, that is not a particularly good recipe for success. So, Nick, let's break this game down, starting with the first half. Like, both sides of the ball, really. I don't think this could have gone much better for Penn State. From the very beginning, the straight-up talent advantage that the Nittany Lions have wasn't just on display. Like, I I almost feel, and I don't want to disrespect Ball State too much because, you know, I think they're a good team. They're going to compete to win the MAC this year. Penn State could have put its twos in in the second or third quarter, eh, probably right before halftime, I think, and had this one pretty comfortably in hand. Yeah, I mean, the first four drives of the game – pretty much told the whole story the first I mean it helped on the first drive the Drew Plitt really wasn't anywhere close on any of those first three throws but that was partially because Penn State was in the pocket on all three of them Um, but yeah that first drive the quick three and out and then Penn State goes on that 13 play 78 yard four minute 33 second drive that was basically just running the ball the whole time I think there were two completed passes uh, three completed passes and then everything else was running and then that third drive Ball State tries to move the ball on the ground gained five yards on the first two plays. They stop them short of the sticks on a third down pass. And then Penn State on that second drive, eight plays, 76 yards, two minutes, 18 seconds. And this one was mostly passes. So like, like they, they proved within the first, well, I don't know. What is that? Uh, like eight minutes of the game that they were going to be able to do whatever they wanted <laughs> on both sides of the ball. And they did it. And that was that. Yeah. And the thing that I am, I was happiest about was I think last week we got a pretty good idea that Penn State's pass catchers or or at least the pass catchers that Penn State is really going to rely on were going to be up for it you know throughout this entire season Jahan Dotson like he's the kind of guy who legitimately thinks he is the best wide receiver in America Parker Washington is just he's a spectacular football player But the issue that Penn State had last week until really the very end of the game was its running backs had a hard time getting going. That's because Wisconsin is just really, really good at stopping you from being able to run the football or involve your running backs at all. So what did Penn State do to start this game? Noah Kane run, Noah Kane run, pass to Noah Kane, Noah Kane run, Noah Kane run, Kayvon Lee run, uh, Noah Kane touchdown run. Back to the air, they got Kayvon Lee and Devin Ford involved both through the air a little bit. I found it interesting, and I want to know if you think this was something that they were doing by design or if this was just taking what uh, Ball State gave them. But it felt to me like there was a concerted effort to go, listen, we'll get to the wide receiver's opportunities in a few moments throughout this game, but whether it's through the air, whether it is on the ground, we want Noah and Kayvon, especially with a little bit of Devin mix into that, getting a little bit more established because we didn't get the opportunity to do that last week. 
I do think that was part of it. Yeah, I think they there was definitely an effort just to get those guys some positive momentum heading into a game against Auburn where they will need them to be able to run the football a bit. Auburn has a good defense. They're going to need some balance there. Um, so yeah, I do I do think there was an effort to do that. I also think that throwing to the running back is just going to be a big part of this offense because it's really a big part of every offense now, college football and NFL. Like that is an essential thing that you need in order to have a successful offense, just have one more option there. Um, but yeah, I do, I do think that they forced the issue. I also think that, you know, overall it was a fairly vanilla play calling game offensively, which, you know, that's all it had to be. They could mostly just run the ball, but the fact that, and I was going to touch on this later, but I, I saw a quote from Noah Kane that said, he like that we have maybe seen oh, what he said he just I don't remember what the exact thing was but he said there's a lot more that we still haven't seen like formation wise and play wise of the Mike Yersich offense and considering that we saw pretty much an a pretty drastically different offensive attack this week than we did last week I'm kind of inclined to agree with him so it, I got the impression that yes they wanted to force the ball to those guys to get them positive momentum heading into the rest of the schedule. But I also think that they did keep a good amount under wraps this week, in my opinion. Yeah. And that's something that I'm going to want to touch on, especially in the second half. But while you were talking there, Nick, you actually got me pretty interested in uh, going back and looking at what I think are the two Mike Yersich offenses that Penn state fans uh, read up on, heard about that sort of thing in the lead up to this season, which was uh, 2016, 2017, Oklahoma state, uh, Cowboys finished 10 and three both seasons. Those were the years uh, with Mason Rudolph there. And I actually wanted to go back and look and see how much the running backs were involved in their passing game. Their top back that year was Justice Hill, uh, 206 carries on the year. He had five receptions all season. Uh, their second best running back was a guy you're familiar with in Chris Carson. Can I get a go Hawks? Go Hawks. He had 82 carries on the year and 13 receptions, and he was their top target out of the backfield. Next season, uh, you know, really got consolidated to just Justice Hill, 268 carries, 31 receptions. And then after that, J.D. King was his backup. He had eight receptions, and then that was basically it for running backs through the air. So, like, it's an I think it's definitely an interesting thing to put – uh, you know, to dog ear that going forward, because one, it's a potential way to look at how Mike Yurisich evolves if you're interested in that sort of thing. But two, it's also a a way for us to really contextualize how good this Penn State running back room is. And that is, it's a unit that is going to be able to go out there and impact the game in a bunch of ways. Like if I told you coming into this season that we are going to see a lot of Kayvon Lee, uh, all six foot, 239 pounds of him. And we are going to see a lot of Noah Kane, all five, 10, 220 pounds of him as options in the passing game. I think we might be a little bit, a little bit worried about that. I think there's probably a perception that, uh, Devin Ford and Kaziah Holmes are a little more built for that sort of thing, but those are ways to just get the ball into those guys' hands in space. It's a very uh, guy we're going to talk about in a bit. Joe Moorhead mentality of we're getting our athletes' balls in advantageous positions. They're going to take. They're going to make you pay for that, and it's an exciting thing. It's a wrinkle that I candidly did not expect to see too much of uh, 
out of Penn State's offense. Uh, rest of the first half, at least on the offensive side of the ball, Nick, uh, you look, they scored on four of their five drives. Touchdown, touchdown, field goal, punt, touchdown. I don't particularly have anything I think is super worth noting. Again, I think it was just a matter of Penn State had such a talent advantage against Ball State that once they scored on those opening two drives, it was like, all right, we, we're going to take our foot off the gas a little bit, and if we have to rev it up again, we're going to rev it up. Yeah, I agree. I, they, yeah, they just didn't, they didn't need to do anything else. It was abundantly clear that if they got to a point where they needed to turn it back on, then they would have easily been able to, but that point just never came. There was never any need to do it. So move to the other side of the ball, though, and punt, punt, field goal, punt, punt, field goal um we talked a little bit coming into this game about how we thought ball state you know we didn't think they were going to torch penn state we didn't think anything like that but they were going to present an interesting challenge because of how radically different they play offense compared to wisconsin uh i think yes that was the case they did present a radically different challenge but it was also a challenge that penn state met head on and could not have responded to any better yeah i we talked a lot about how we expected um johans tyler and justin hall to be maybe not necessarily problems but challenges for the secondary the likes that we didn't see against wisconsin and they really just weren't I mean Drew played only through for 226 yards on the day and he only averaged four and a half yards per completion like and that I think that's reflective of what we saw um, especially when we get into the second half there they really just kind of abandoned any hopes of throwing the ball downfield and really did just settle for kind of screens and drag routes over the middle and just very very short completions that more often than not never even had a remote chance of going for anything big because the Penn State defense was just flying around and they allowed some completions. Sure, I completed 25, 39 passes, but the second those balls were completed, they were completely surrounded. Like it was never, it was never an issue. So it, I, I'm I'm not sure that it's, I'm not sure whether to take away that, like, I'm not sure whether to take more away that Penn State's secondary and defense overall just, completely ate them up or that ball state just wasn't as good as we thought they might be throwing the football. It's probably a little bit of both, but um, I'm, I'm feeling pretty great about the Penn state defense right now. Yeah. I'm going through uh, the drives again. First drive with the exception of only one sack is disappointing to me. I I know they were in there a lot more than that. And they did throw a lot of quick passes, especially as the game went on. But I would have liked to see more than one sack. Yeah, uh, the one sack came... Uh, Curtis Jacobs. Via Curtis Jacobs. Yes, that's right. Got in there like a heat-seeking missile. I will say, though, six tackles for loss. So Penn State's, uh, P- Penn State was really living in that backfield. Uh, right. Just, the fir- that know. early Arnold uh, Ibikidi one especially was oh, yeah. a wonderful play. Yeah, I, hell of a play. I mean, he had... Uh, four tackles, one tackle for loss, a quiet-ish game. But after last week, like, th- that's fine, sir, if you wanted to take 
if you wanted to go five of 10, I would not blame you after what we saw last week. But yeah, going through the drive charts, uh, three and out, three and out, field goal, a four-play drive that ended in a punt because there was a pass interference called against Kalen King, which um, I love him. Um, we will uh, He'll be a guy that we mention a little bit uh, later on. Uh, three he is and out. very handsy, and I'm a big fan of it. Yes, he. Uh, I will be the one who makes this reference. He's very much one of those um, old old legion of boom cornerbacks where it's like go Hawks, right? Well, I, I'm just I'm going to commit either a pass interference or a holding on every play if I and it's up to you to call it because uh, I know you won't. But yeah, uh, three and out, three and out, uh, scoring drive for all intents and purposes, a three and out, three and out scoring drive. And every single time that Ball State was able to move the ball a little bit, there were a couple of chunk plays in there that, uh, you know, not going to take those away by any stretch of the imagination. But a lot of what, and I think this is what makes this game so encouraging for Penn State fans, a lot of the times when Ball State was able to gain some yardage, other than those chunk plays, of course, it just seemed really hard. Like nothing that they were able to do seemed particularly easy. Like Penn State just made them work for every single thing that they had to do. And when they were getting, you know, three, four, five, six yards on a play, it felt like it was get the ball out of the quarterback's hands really quickly to someone like uh, Nick mentioned on a crossing route on a slant, something like that. And then boom, immediately they get closed down on. And that's, that, that's the end of it. I mean, those two scoring drives also, I think need to get a little bit of attention because first one, they get a first and 10 at Penn state's 11 and have to settle for three points. Second one, first and goal at Penn state's four, uh, Penn State knocks them back to a third and goal was on Penn State's 12 yard line. Then they had to settle for a field goal again. And I think Nick, that's the thing that impressed me the most about this defense is there were basically two tests that they had. There were two times where, uh, you know, ball state might've caught them napping a little bit, but if anything, it just seemed like that made them mad. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, yeah, the only time the defense ever really like every time it felt like the defense gave up a play they shouldn't have given up, they immediately turned around and stuffed the next few in a row. It yeah, totally agree. Hey, uh Nick, uh real quick, uh so did you see who just scored for the New Orleans Saints? Uh I didn't see it, but I saw on Twitter that it was Juwan Johnson. Former Penn State great. I am uh I have him on my fantasy team. Uh, I picked him as a joke, but actually, you know, that might actually be a good idea. We love you, Juwan. Uh, oh, yeah. No, he's going to be legit good this year because he's their he's their he's starting tight end now. Starting your backup, something like that. Like, good for Juwan, man. Like it's he's supposed to be the backup, but I believe uh, Adam Adam Troutwine, I believe, is the guy's or. Yeah, uh, something. That, it's something that, like that, that might be someone else. But there is a Troutwine that's supposed to be ahead of him that is injured, I believe. Listen, Juwan. Uh, Juwan, if you listen to this podcast, one, why, two, please come on it, and three, uh, if you want to sponsor us, we would happily be a podcast sponsored by former Penn State tight end. Uh, Juwan is all over, all over his Instagram. You know he would toss up a good <laughs> IG at us, add up for us if we got the chance. So let's move on to the second half. Um, I, I, The second half was kind of weird, Nick, because 
24 to 6 ends 44 uh, start 24 to 6 ends 24 to 13 Penn State outscored Ball State 20 to 7 um well Penn State's offense only put up 13 of those points Jesse Luke had a pick six shout out to Jesse we'll talk about you in a second uh but I didn't get the sense that Penn State was exactly you know you look at uh Look at the team that Penn State is playing next week. Auburn played Alabama State. They won 62 to nothing this week. Last week, Auburn played Akron, won 60 to 10. I didn't get the sense Penn State wanted to win a game like that. I got the sense, you know, maybe I'm totally wrong that wanted to get a bunch of guys reps, wanted to get a bunch of guys opportunities out there, didn't want to try anything too uh, super mega crazy. Just see out the game. Let's take the win. Let's have an eye on next week. Would you say that was about your vibe? Because I, I know you did watch it a little bit later than I did. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember a time in the second half that the you know the traditional run play in said situation would be to put the ball on the ground. I don't remember a single time in the second half where they reached one of those situations and they didn't run the ball. So I, I think they were, like I said before, I think they were pretty purposely or pretty purposefully vanilla and didn't really do anything surprising or anything out of the ordinary and just let, you know, I, I think they would have been, I think they would have been perfectly comfortable winning like 31 to six or 31 to 13. I think they were happy to just, you know, ride it out, take their W, start getting ready for next week, not put too much on tape for Auburn to look at because, you know, remember Auburn. Yeah. They've, been i'm sure they've prepped for their first two opponents of this year but their first two opponents have been akron and alabama state so you're kidding yourself if you don't think those coaches have also been devoting some time each week to be continually looking ahead towards penn state i think the goal of this half was just to get some guys into the game who haven't gotten much playing time yet i think the goal was to just try to shore continue to get get reps in the run game and get some other offensive linemen in there, especially and rotate them in and just get to the whistle without any major injuries. Yeah. I mean, Dan has uh, yet to do snap counts this week, but I would be shocked if it isn't borne out in snap counts that that was basically the approach. I mean, just like off the top of my head, guys like uh, Kobe King, guys like Jamari Budden, uh, guys like Bryce Efter, a lot of guys who, uh, you know, I'm not going to knock their ability or anything like that, but they're not guys at the very top of the depth chart. They were getting out there. They were getting wrong. We know run. There's one thing we know. It's that James Franklin values having guys who know what it is like to be out there, uh, in the trenches. And, we we saw a little bit of that. We I mean, even looking at some of the guys who uh, recorded tackles for Penn State in the game, Tyler Elsden was in that. Budden, like I mentioned, uh, was in that. Uh, Smith Vilbert, who played a tiny bit last week, but not a ton. Fatorma uh, Moba was in there. Koziah Izzard, Kobe King, Sebastian Costantini. Like a lot of guys that we don't really expect to be huge contributors were getting that little bit of run. And, you know, there were some moments in there that I think we could dog ear. Um, 
there were some plays that I found really proud. Of course, Jesse Lukita's pick six, I felt like that uh, really got the crowd going because, you know, there's one thing we know, third crowd or beat third quarter crowd at Beaver Stadium isn't particularly uh, explosive all that much. Uh, Sean Clifford had a really nice run uh, for something like 50 yards and a very Trace McSorry looking moment. But the entire thing seemed like a big effort to give guys an opportunity to play. And Nick, the one real positive that I take from that is that Ball State wasn't doing that. Ball State had its guys out there, had a lot of its guys out there. Uh, they took out Plitt and put in uh, John Paddock towards the end. But Ball State did not stop playing. And I found it really admirable that despite that, Penn State was able to hold them uh, to 13 points. Yeah, Paddock only came in for that very last drive of the game where they didn't score. The game ended on a... Uh what a first and five from the Penn state seven. They took a shot in the end zone, didn't get it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he only played that last drive. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I, I thought that this was a, I thought it was a really nice chance for a lot of those backups to get time against, you know, a legit, I, they won the Mac last year. Like again, this ball state team is a talented football team. Maybe the sum of the parts isn't anywhere near what Penn state is, but there are some great individual talents and that is a great opportunity for guys like King and, and King and King and Button and all those other young guys to get reps against. And I agree. It was really I like none of those guys are going to be barring injuries. None of those guys are going to be counted on to be major contributors this year. So it was great to see them and to see that that next wave. Well, we know that it's chocked full of talent. So it was great to see that they are starting to kind of put that together into success at the D1 level. Yeah, I, I really the only things that, you know, made me raise my eyebrows a little bit were uh, Jordan Stout missed a 45 yard kick, which, you know, it's yes, not. I, I would like to talk. I would like to talk about the uh, kick in situation. We will in a sec. Like it wasn't ideal, but otherwise yeah. uh, Stout went three for four on field goals, five for five on extra points. Uh, booming punts, booming kickoffs, all those sorts of things. Uh, I felt Sean Clifford was a little bit, I, I don't know if off is the word, but he just didn't look like he was especially, you, you know, he didn't look super crisp. I, fortunately, he wasn't looking like he was out there scared, out there playing nervous, anything like that. He, you know, just didn't look like he was, uh, exactly going for broke or anything like that. But for the most part, I was pretty content. Uh, was glad to see the young guys get in at the end. And I was really glad to see Taquan Roberson lead a touchdown drive at the very end of the game. Uh, I, I, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about the kicking situation, though. What's, uh, what's on your mind, Nick? Yeah, so I don't at all doubt that Jordan Stout was the more impressive field goal kicker during the off season and during workouts. But do we, and I like we saw last year that handling all three of those roles. And even last year, he wasn't, he wasn't the full time uh, kicker. He's only taking the long range kicks, but we saw last year that having all three of those roles took a toll on him. I mean, towards the end of the year, we didn't see quite as many 
Um, kickoffs going out of the back of the end zone with him. We did start to see him put a few more of those in play. We know his punting last year was really disappointing overall. I I just I think it's too much for one for one game for one guy to be doing all of those things. I think that I would prefer to see Penninger get a chance to win the uh, place kicking job back. I'm fine with Stout keeping the long range one. That's fine, but. I, I really don't think that one player should be doing all three of those things. I want to see Pinnegar get a chance to win that job back. And if he can't, I want to see Sanders Sahadak get a chance. I mean, we know he has a monster leg too. I, it's like we can't – like Penn State can't afford to be missing a field goal every game. And I know 45 yards is not a gimme by any means, but that's the kind of field goal that they should be making and the kind of field goal they were mostly making last year and obviously last week – you know, again, I have sympathy for it. I don't remember, don't remember if it was 22 or 24 yards, but I know it was a tough angle. I know that's a that's a more difficult kick than it looks. But as they get into the games against Auburn and Ohio State and Iowa and Michigan, like they just can't afford to have a missed field goal every game. I think they need to try something different there and try to get that shored up. I. I agree with you. Uh, I know that they had the, um, you know, kind of the line that 40 and in was Pinnaker and 41 and out was Stout or whatever. Uh, But I don't think you're wrong. Uh, I just, what I wonder is maybe they could change, if they're going to keep moving forward with Stout as place kicker, uh, I wonder if maybe they consider taking uh, kickoff duty off of him. And that's where you try to decide if Pinnegar or if Sahadek is the guy who, uh, you know, who can give you a little something there. Uh, I'm I, where I ultimately come down on it is I'm fine with it. I'm fine with them keeping stout doing all three. If they're not concerned about how much wear and tear that does to his leg, I wonder if they, you know, if maybe the idea is eventually going to be twofold Pinnegar back in. Uh, but, you know, if they say that he's good to do it, then we kind of have to trust them. You know what I mean? Like, they, I, I, I hate to just blindly say they're right about everything. We don't know anything. But, like, this is just something that James Franklin has harped on for so long. I, I don't, I yeah. don't disagree, but you know, I, and again, like I, there's zero doubt in my mind that he is the better place kicker in practice, but in practice, you're it's, it's not a simulation of a game. Like he's not running around and punting and place kicking and kicking and doing kickoffs the same way he is during a game. Like it's all much more condensed. It's all, you know, with pressure in your face, all that stuff. I just, if I'm totally fine with him keeping the job again for another week. But if he misses another field goal again, I think you at least have to try to give Penninger a chance to win at least his portion of the place kicking job back. Yeah. And again, if if that means you try someone else at punter, I know they have uh, a few potential punters on uh, on the roster. They well, just I don't want to do, he's been stuff. so good as he's been so good as the right. punter. I yeah, don't want to do that, that. that. That's fair. What, what I'm more saying is they have three dudes on 
Uh, well, this is, I mean, this is mostly just a way for me to mention they have a 6'6", 302-pound freshman punter who I would like to see. But okay. Well, uh, he's, he is nowhere to if, – if they switch punters, they're going to go to Barney Amore, the transfer from uh, – oh, I don't remember where, some very small school. But, no, I, I, I don't think he should at all lose his punting job. I think the job he's doing, especially when you combine it with how good Penn State's defense is, I think you – I think yeah. that combination is deadly. I don't think he can break that part up. Yeah, that's fair. I, so if we come to one agreement here, it is let Sanders Sahada take uh, take kickoffs. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, because, because that's the entire thing. Like, you look through it. they uh, It seems pretty obvious to me that they don't have a level of trust in Pinnegar right now. Um, whether or not that's something that can be overcame, I don't know, but... 16 for 24 as a freshman, 11 for 12 as a sophomore, 9 for 13 as a junior. Okay numbers. Uh, I don't want to throw Sahadek in there. So if you just want to keep Stout there, then go for it. But it's it's an interesting dilemma. And it's one that I want to see if they uh, if they can get sorted out in the coming you know, days, weeks, whatever. And um, if they do leave it be, let's put Jake Penninger, former All-State safety, back at safety for the rest ooh, of the year. Boy. Why not? Mm, uh, well. Do it and be do, legends. Do, do, do it against Villanova, at least. Let's see what happens. Uh, game balls. Nick, uh, one offense, one defense. Who are you handing them out to? Offensively, I... It's tough because I... I think it probably goes to Sean Clifford because I think he did exactly what he was supposed to in this game. But more importantly, I think he looked very decisive in this game. Like I didn't really notice any moments where he looked like he had too much panic. I think there's you know still some inconsistencies with his footwork and his throws, but I don't think that he struggled with his decision-making necessarily in this one. Um, uh but the, I I also would really love to be able to give it to Kayvon Lee, though, because I think Kayvon Lee ran the ball really effectively, especially, I mean, to open the, I think it was their first drive of the second half where he had the four consecutive first down runs on first and 10. You don't see that a lot. That's pretty awesome. And mm-hmm. I know he was, what, he was the pro football focus highest graded running back in the country this week or just the Big Ten? I don't remember. Uh, It might have been uh the country. Give me, you, you keep talking. Okay. Give me a second. I'll look it up. Yeah, regardless, I think I think he deserves as well. But also, I, I thought Sean Clifford ran the ball really well. That 43-yard run obviously is the highlight, but I thought he, again, similar to his throws, I thought he made good decisions on the ground. So, you know, I, I think both Clifford and Lee are deserving of it, but I'm going to give it to Clifford for his decisiveness. And this was one of the best examples I think I've seen from him of actually working through progressions. Like, there are several plays, and I'm sure I'll, I'll see this again when I chart the, the passing chart again, Um but I saw several plays where I really did see his eyes moving all around the field and very clearly going through progressions, which is something that we haven't really seen too much from him. Um, so I will tentatively give it to Clifford if I watch the if I when I track the game, if I notice otherwise that I may retroactively go back on that. But for now, I'll say Clifford defensively. I'm going to give it to Jesse Lagina because, yeah, I it's clear at this point that, you know, he is what he is as a linebacker. He was fine in that spot. But I mean, he is—he's a—he's a completely different dude at defensive end to the point that I'm, you know, I'm wondering why it took this long to make this change. Like maybe he just 
maybe this was just all dormant and they had no idea he would be this good at defensive end until they actually made the change. You know, maybe they didn't feel like they had the bodies to do it last year. I, last year they also had Shaka Tony and Odafa away, so they didn't need to do it. Um, but he is, I, I'm so happy for that kid because he has been, he's been in the program for, is this his fourth year or his fifth year? I This is his fourth year. Cause he, he came in the same yeah. year as Micah and this would have been Micah's fourth year. So, um, right this would have been like his fourth year yeah yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. it's his fourth year he's I, I thought he played enough as a freshman um and you know he's always been this guy that you could see was talented but he never quite put it all together he's putting it all together at defensive end the interception was a great individual play but he has you know he has plenty of other plays that are going to go on his tape and make him a legitimate candidate to play defensive end in the nfl i think like he has the size and he's showing that he has the skill to do it. So I'm just so happy for that kid. And I thought he had a great game on Saturday. Yeah, I will. I'm actually going to give my one on offense. Uh, just, just to go back to something you said, highest graded power five running backs in week two uh, per PFF. Number one, Kayvon Lee, number five, Devin Ford. I'm actually going to give it uh, to someone else in that backfield. And I'm going to give it to Noah Kane. Um, I didn't think anyone had like, a particularly exceptional game, uh, 20 carries, 69 yards, 3.5 yards per carry, one touchdown, three receptions, three, uh, three receptions, 30 yards. I'm giving it to him mostly because this was his first chance since he got hurt last year, you know, second year in a row that he had a season ending injury. Um, and, you know, he went out there and he was able to be the featured back. He was able to shoulder an entire workload, and I'm just really happy for him uh, because of that. And then I'm going to repeat what you said about Jesse Lukita. Just he's been – he did a nice job uh, deputizing for Ellis Brooks, but just really, really impressive performance uh, for him once he slid down to defensive end. He got to use the fact that he's 6'3", 247 pounds a little more effectively. Uh then, you know, special tips of the cap, I'd say, to some of the younger guys who got moments that they haven't had so far in this program. It's Juan Roberson, his first completion as a Penn State quarterback, went for a touchdown to Theo Johnson, who caught his first career touchdown uh, for the Nittany Lions. Uh, Marquise Wilson got his first career reception. Uh, all the dudes on defense who ended up getting some run that we went through earlier finally got out there and got the opportunity to do a little something uh, and, and, you know, just take that moment and celebrate it. I mean, this is uh, James Franklin, I think, is a really good coach at saying you did something cool. You should take some time to be proud of it. So I hope they all take some time to be proud of it. Uh, and I hope Kalen King never, ever stops with how he plays cornerback because, you, you know, I for how good I think Joey Porter Jr. is, uh, I think Kalen King has an edge and a nastiness about him that I just don't think we've seen out of Penn State, out of a Penn State cornerback in a while. So I like, I just love that guy. I completely understand why he gets, why he got all the attention that he got heading, uh, heading into this season. Um, let's see. Anything else you want to mention from Scan? Uh, was that targeting? Nick? Did Tyler Rudolph commit to targeting? Um, uh, I mean, by the letter of the law, yeah, probably. Yeah, uh, I don't really. Yeah, I. It is what it is. I. That is one thing I've been a little annoyed about. I I've seen too many Penn State tacklers going in head down like that. Um, not saying that that I mean I 
was it on i forget who was was it steel was the running back he tackled for that i don't remember who it was but um i know i know offense yeah whomever it was like i think like you mentioned rudolph by the letter of the law committed a targeting but i also think it's like there are just sometimes when it's really hard to tackle someone with the position that the runner puts themselves into. And I think that was one of those situations. Right. Yeah. Offensive players are taught to get low at the ball and put their head down in order to absorb those tackles, but also nowadays in order to earn a targeting penalty, if you can. So, you know, I, I get, I get that it's tough for defenders, but I do think Penn State's tackling overall is not necessarily the best form that I've seen. I I am constantly worried about Brandon Smith getting targeting calls because oh, Jesus. he's yeah. just so he's just so big that for him it's especially hard to avoid doing it. Um but yeah, I I didn't have any major complaints with it. Um you know, it's also Tyler Rudolph's also at least second or third on the depth chart so it's not a huge deal but i uh, yeah. i mean by the by the letter of the law yes i agree with the call yeah i i, I think i'm i, I think i'm worried you're i do have it. one more game ball i want to give out though before we yeah, close go ahead. the book on this game go ahead my boy daquan Hardy. yes i i, I was waiting is for coming you he is coming into his own. He looks so good as the slot corner. It's it's the perfect position for him. He's small. He's shifty. He's probably faster than any receiver that he's lined up against. Like that dude is an absolute track star. Um, he it's it's just the perfect spot for him, especially on this defense where you have so many big hulking dudes that also have speed just everywhere around him. It really allows him to just just be himself and just do nothing more than focus on just sticking with that guy in the slot and letting his pure athleticism take over. And you could tell on that interception, you could tell he like, he trusts that guy over the top of him. He felt that he could be comfortable enough to try to undercut that route. And he did it beautifully. I've just been so impressed with it between that. He had a tackle for loss earlier in the game. He's somebody that, he came in, he came to Penn State, what, like 140 pounds. Like he came in just, just absolutely tiny, barely like got a last second offer. I think they offered him maybe the day before signing day or maybe even on signing day. Like it was, it was just last, very, very last second. And he was such a good high school football player. You knew that if he could get to the weight he needed to be at and not sacrifice any of his athleticism or speed, that he was going to be a player. And it looks like that's exactly what he's done. I absolutely love Daquan Hardy. I think he's going to be really, really good for the rest of this season and as long as he's here. Yeah, I'm pulling up his uh, recruit page right now. Uh, 5'10", 160 was what he was listed at. Uh, number 1,379 recruit in the country. A solid, solidly a three-star. Uh, he was also quite comfortably, the, in terms of uh, ratings, the worst player in his class. Uh, the guy above him, Joseph Apaya Darkwa, was number 974 player in this country. Uh, Hardy was more than 300 spots below him. But I remember one thing that everyone said was that he was someone who, uh, you know, you could just tell he is good. It is a matter of getting some bulk onto him and being able to take it's really similar right. to the journey brown situation mm-hmm. too right i mean with the difference being that like journey brown had like a a skill about him that was so special like his speed was something 
next level. And Hardy was just like good at football. And it's good to see that it's translated. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. Uh, what's up with the Big Ten? Real quick. Let's talk. Actually, no, before we do that, uh, general temperature check, Nick, Penn State's 2-0. Um, I'm not going to lie. I feel better than I anticipated feeling uh, when the season started. Um, part of that is because I think of the series of events that occurred in the city in which I currently reside over the weekend, but it feels like it's now, it's becoming easier to see a path or a sequence of events where this Penn state team has a legitimate shot at competing for a big 10 championship, which I don't know if that was necessarily the case the first week of the year. Yeah, I know. I agree. I think the, if you had told me before the season, if you told anyone before the season that in the first two weeks, Penn State would escape from Madison with a ugly, close win and then come back home against Ball State and won comfortably and dominated throughout and like never really was in danger of losing, like you would say absolutely you would take that. And that's exactly what they did over the first two weeks. Like I, I, am really interest, interested to see what they do against Auburn. Obviously, that's going to be a great a great barometer, especially after these first two games. But so far, I am thinking that this Penn State defense is really, really, really good. And I, I, I've been really encouraged by what I've seen from the Penn State offense from the second half of Wisconsin on. And I'm... I'm kind. Of, I'm at a place where I I'm pretty well trusting Mike Yurcich to do what needs to be done in order to win a football game, and I think Clifford has shown enough that he can be that guy to lead the team. I'm feeling pretty good about this Penn State team. I I think I echo those sentiments. I mean, Penn State coming into the season, I think the concern that the the big concern that I had was that just way too much early on in the year. Like that first month of the half of the season was going to be so wicked that it was going to take, it was going to take some good fortune for them to escape it. God unscathed, definitely with things on track even more so. Um, But you now get Auburn at home. Indiana doesn't look nearly as fearsome as it did entering this season. Uh, Illinois isn't particularly great. Villanova is an FCS team. That trip to Kinnick has gotten considerably scarier, I would say. Um, but we can, uh, you know, that's across the bridge when you get to a thing. Things, things look far more manageable now than they did, you know, even at 11.59 a.m. on Saturday. So thing, things are looking pretty good for Penn State, uh, in part because of what's been going on in the Big Ten. Let's go around the Big Ten, Nick, and we will start. Maryland 62, Howard nothing. Indiana 56, Idaho 14. Nebraska 28, Buffalo 3. Purdue 49, UConn 0. Rutgers 17, Syracuse 7. Northwestern 26, uh, 24, Indiana State 6. Minnesota 31, Miami of Ohio 26. Michigan State 42, Youngstown State 14, Virginia 42, Illinois 14, Wisconsin 34, Eastern Michigan 7. Do you have anything to say about any of those football games? Um, Illinois is terrible. Real bad. The only the only teams of in the only teams across the conference that that you listed there that I think are 
any sort of threat to Penn State or to the other top teams in the Big Ten are Wisconsin, obviously. Michigan State might have something they, going Michigan on. Michigan State, They've through two good. weeks, I mean, like, Northwestern and Youngstown State isn't exactly, uh, you know, the nastiest one-two punch of all time, and we're going to learn a lot about them this weekend with their trip to Miami, where hopefully uh, no cats escape death, that have, are, are put in positions to escape death this time. Uh, but they look frisky, and yeah, I mean, I, I was not expecting that out of Michigan State. Yeah, like the thing with Michigan State is if they, if Peyton Thorne can, like, yes, they've run the ball really well. I think we can assume it, well, maybe not assume. They haven't played anyone really worth anything, but um, their running game looks like it might be decent. If Peyton Thorne can just complete passes, I think that Jaden Reed, Jalen, Jalen Naylor, and um, is the one thing, is, um, What's the kid's name? Um, oh, God. This is great podcasting. What's the other Michigan State receiver that they have? Uh, sorry, my uh, my mic was muted. Do you mean Trey Mosley or Jalen Naylor? No, aside from Naylor, whatever. I mean, Reed Jayden and Naylor Reed? alone. Yeah, Reed no, and Naylor. No, those two. Aside from Reed and Naylor, somebody's hurt. Um, oh, I'll, I'll think of it later. Um but those, two, I mean, those two alone, those are two really good, like, college receivers. If they could just get them the football, like, that is going to be an offense that at least is worth something. Like, that's that's all they really need to be able to do. So I'm going to be interested to see if they could keep doing that going forward. Uh, yeah, and the other only other school that really concerns me... Ricky White, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Oh, okay. The only other school that I I don't know if concerns me is the right word, but like Indiana's probably better than what we saw against Iowa. But at the same time, like there's a chance Cincinnati just stomps them this week. Uh, they have to come to Happy Valley. I mean, I, I didn't get a chance to watch their game too particularly closely, but apparently Michael Penix just like something looks off with him, which probably isn't a surprise considering uh, you know, three straight seasons and with season ending injuries is going to take a toll on anyone. But uh, in- interesting yeah. time in the Big Ten because, like, it feels like there are four schools, maybe five, depending on what you think of Wisconsin, who are just, like, head – I don't want to say head and shoulders, but are considerably better than the other teams in the conference. And I think it's time uh, to run through them – really quickly starting and we're going to go back to front for very obvious reasons uh with what happened in ann arbor michigan 31 washington 10 john donovan's offense looked like garbage um part of that has to be though nick on michigan's offense which uh, michigan's defense and then on offense i don't know if they're going to be able to throw the ball at all this season especially after ronnie bell went out but blake Corum and hassan haskins is as good of a one-two punch at running back as there might be in the country yeah, I, I think the only Michigan's defense did play really well. They did allow 293 passing yards to a Washington um, to a Washington offense led by Dylan Morris and John Donovan. Dylan Morris threw for, 
Uh, let's see. Give me game logs. What did he throw for last week? He threw for he only threw for 226 yards against Montana in a game they were losing, and they were still throwing the football. So, I I think you if you're Michigan, you would have liked to see a little more clamping down, but they kept him off the scoreboard, which is the most important thing. I uh, I think that the problem with this Michigan team is yeah, the defense looks pretty good. I I think the defense will be solid, and Blake and, and Corman just real, Haskins. Real- I would say real quick before you go into whatever the problem is, I just want to say that uh, Aiden Hutchinson might be the single scariest player in the Big Ten. That dude is yes, he is nasty. A yeah, he's an animal. He's going to be. I mean, he was. There's a reason he was projected to be a first round pick um, last year before his injury, uh, and he'll be a first round pick this year when he does enter the draft. Uh, so Blake Corum and Hassan Haskins. That's an awesome, awesome, awesome combination. But if I was Michigan, I would be pretty worried about the fact that it does not appear like we're they're going to be able to throw the ball very much going forward without Ronnie Bell. Obviously, we're going to have to wait to see a game where they're actually forced to throw the ball to do that. But if this game is any indication, Jim Harbaugh is going to force Josh Gaddis to feature the run game. They ran the ball 56 times in this game. And I know they were they're up 21, but in the third quarter, this game was, you know, is it 17-3? Like, not totally out of reach. Washington can score a touchdown and tighten things up a bit there. So if if I'm Michigan, I, I want to see them actually throw the football a little bit without Ronnie Bell. I they threw pretty well in week one against, you know, is it Western Michigan? I think they played. I like Yes, positive vibes out of Ann Arbor for that team, absolutely, right now. But I still have some pretty significant questions about what they look like going up against Penn State and Ohio State. And uh, do they play Iowa or, let's see, they they play Wisconsin in three weeks. They play Penn State. Okay, so their crossovers are Wisconsin, Nebraska, and Northwestern. And they play them all in a row. So not too not too tough there. So, you know, I don't... The schedule's pretty soft, you know, looking at it. So maybe they have a chance to get hot and do something do something big. But I still have some pretty significant questions about their passing game. I, I think that's fair. Uh, Cade McNamara, 7 for 15, 44 yards. Uh, one thing I think is important to mention is you talked about running the football, power running the football, blah, how they're going to want to do that, uh, how they have two backs to do it. Like, I think that's a very important thing. Like in years past, it's felt like Michigan has run the football in large part because that's just what they do. Uh, this year, it feels like they actually have two running backs in Blake Corum and Asan Haskins who can really run it. Uh, but it's also important to mention that uh, according to uh, Todd Blackledge on the broadcast, uh, I believe it was Blackwood and Sean McDonough. Uh, Harbaugh straight up went up to Josh Gaddis and said, we're running the football the way I want to this year, um, which, listen, nothing has ever gone poorly when Jim Harbaugh has forced himself into how the offense does things. Uh, it is worth mentioning, though, Michigan number <laughs> six in SP+. Plus. Uh, five, six, seven is Ohio State, P- Michigan, and Penn State. Wisconsin's in eighth. And in 15th is the next team – that we are going to discuss. I don't know if we'd be discussing them if not for the fact that Penn State's heading there, Nick. Uh, Iowa 27, Iowa State 17, winning the Cy Hawk Trophy in Ames. Um, here's what I'll say about Iowa. On one hand, yes, this absolutely feels like 
it could be one of those years for Iowa. Last week, you know, kicked Indiana's teeth in. This week, going to Ames, which is not an easy place to play when it is this particular game, and went against a really good Iowa State team and turned them over four times, one by ten. Defense looked pristine, five penalties, 50 yards, uh, Iowa State 5.9 yards per pass, 3.2 yards per rush. It looks like an Iowa defense that can do things and do a lot of things that make you look really bad. And going to Kinnick scares me, uh, even if, you know, fingers crossed, Fox gets that game and that gets the big new treatment instead of the, a, a night kick. But having said that, Nick, Iowa's offense – 173 total yards, 106 passing, 67 rushing. They averaged 1.7 yards per rush, four for 15 on third downs, 11 first downs in the game. My read on Iowa, and this might come back to haunt me, is that the defense might be national championship. Like this might be one of the best defenses Iowa has had in a long time. But I don't know how worried I am considering what Iowa's offense is. Yeah, right. They they have won these first two games on the strength of their defense. Week one, yeah, they put up some points on the board, but they also had two pick sixes. So um, I, I have the same questions. Yeah, you mentioned the total yardage. They're only two um, offensive touchdown drives in this game. One was uh, eight plays, 49 yards. The other one was 10 plays, 71 yards. So... It's not like they really did anything. I mean, if we go down their offensive drives, three plays, punt, three plays, punt, five plays, miss field goal. How did they get? How did they do that? <laughs> five plays, nine yards and a miss field goal. Where did they start? Regardless, um, six uh, plays. They, they started yards. on Iowa State's 41. OK, six plays, 19 yards, punt, then the touchdown drive, touchdown drive, three plays, negative four yards, punt, five plays, two yards, punt. Uh, interception, four plays, negative eight yards, field goal, six plays, 18 yards, field goal, three plays, four yards, punt, three plays, one yard, punt, three plays, six yards, punt. Like, it's not an offense that is going to, like, the, the offense is not going to beat you. If their defense gives them the ball in an opportunistic situation, they will probably turn it into points, but that's far from guaranteed. I think that this team, I, like you said, potentially a national championship caliber defense. That being said, they've played, you know, Indiana, who we talked about, Penix is, you know, how he just doesn't quite look right. Also, Brock Purdy, for as fun as he can be, perhaps one of the more turnoverable quarterbacks in the country, because that dude is just going to sling it. I, so, I don't think you need the word perhaps in that. <laughs> exactly. So I I think that they're going to run into some trouble when they play against teams that are not going to be careless with the football. Like, for example, it seems like Penn State isn't going to be careless with the football this year. It seems like they're going to take care of it. I, I just I'm not sure that their offense is going to be able to manufacture points if their defense isn't handing them the ball with 30 yards to go to the end zone. Yeah, I mean, I think of, you know, I think back to. What was the scare that Penn State had in Kinnick? 21-19 in 2017. And I think of just 
it's kind of the Iowa story. Everything has to go right for Iowa and everything has to go wrong for the other team in order for Iowa to have a shot. And in fairness to Iowa, they are really good at winning that football game. Uh, So like, I'd go as far as to say it is a skill of theirs to make that the game that they play. So kudos, like kudos Iowa, they absolutely deserve it. But uh, I am probably, God, I'm going to have to pick my words really carefully because the last thing I need is the go Iowa awesome guys clipping this and making fun of me. But like, I am... I'll, I'll say it. If this game is not at night in Kinnick, I'm not particularly scared of this matchup for Penn State. It is. Well, it's not even that. It's like I was going to go into that game at probably at the bare minimum, the number five team in the country. Like right now they're at number yeah, five. I don't, right. I don't know the schedules of Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma, and Oregon off the top of my head, but they, one of those lose that game. I was going to be a team in a playoff position, potential playoff position. Um, and Penn State's going to be going to one of the most hostile buildings in college football. And I would feel about as good as I probably could in that situation. I wouldn't feel great, but I wouldn't feel particularly terrified. Um, last game, Nick. Last game we're going to be talking about. Uh, O-H-N-O. Uh, the Oregon Ducks walking in to Columbus, Ohio. Uh, took it to the Ohio State Buckeyes, a 35-28 to 28 win for Joe Moorhead's uh, Oregon Ducks. Of course, he is not the head coach. I love him more than I do Mario Cristobal, though. Um, here's what I'll say. I think that you can say Oregon got a bit fortunate because Ohio State seemed hell-bent on being its own worst enemy. I think that the gap in talent between Ohio State's offense and Oregon's defense is like, okay. The gap in talent, I think, between Oregon's offense and Ohio State's defense is probably considerable, but I think the coaching advantage ultimately made up for that. That looked like a lost Ohio State football team in a lot of situations in that game. They couldn't run the ball consistently. They put way too much on C.J. Stroud, who did everything he could, but ultimately I think that defense let them down, and I think that Joe Moorhead called himself a perfect game, and I like I could not be happier for him Uh considering how the last time he went to Columbus went. Yeah, I mean, the the 4.1 yards per carry for the Ohio State offense on 31 rushes is obviously not great, but C.J. Stroud was 35-54 for 484 yards, three touchdowns and a pick, averaging nine yards per completion. Like, this, I think, is pretty clearly the best passing attack in the country. Um, and I, I don't think it would be absurd to say best overall offense in the country either. But that defense just looks downright average. And it's, yeah, I I think we all trust that Joe Moorhead like, knew exactly what he wanted to do, cooked up the perfect scheme. But it's not like they were facing a top 10 quarterback in Anthony Brown. Anthony Brown has been pretty average to below average for his entire collegiate career. He, he completed um, he, fewer than 50% of his passes on the day. Yeah, 17, 17 for 35. 35 for 236 yards, 6.7 yards per catch or yards per uh, a completion. Just nothing 
nothing outstanding there. It was the run game particularly. 38 carries, 269 yards, 7.1 yards per carry. C.J. Verdell on his own, 8.1 yards per carry, 161 total yards. Those are not the kinds of numbers that you would expect that Oregon offense, which is good, don't get me wrong, it's a good offense. It is not in the conversation for top five in the country. I would say that's pretty a pretty fair thing to say. You do not see an Ohio State defense get beat by this caliber of offense like that very often, especially on the ground. This It just looks like this Ohio State defense, we talked about it before, every year Ohio State is replacing plenty of players because they're an NFL factory. They're going to send at least you know, six or seven guys are going to be drafted, 10 or 11, 12 total are going to go to the league every year. And they're going to be constantly replacing and uh, replacing starters on defense and all that stuff. But this year was going to be an especially tough task because they were replacing all three starting linebackers. And I think that you saw some of the effects of that this week and last week. They got shredded on the ground by now two teams in a row. Like that's the type of thing that you notice when you're missing your three starting linebackers from last year. And you're missing guys like Tommy Togiai in the middle. I know Haskell Garrett's still there and he's a monster, but like they are missing some really important players from last year's defense. And the backups that are taking their place now are not assimilating as quickly as they have in the past. Maybe part of that is due to the fact that Jeff Halfley is gone. Maybe part of that is just the players that are taking those spots, but this is not the same Ohio state defense. It is a very, very beatable defense, but you know, you still have to beat him because that offense is going to continue to score all year. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i going to uh, recommend everyone goes and looks at the Twitter timeline of our uh, pal Patrick Mayhorn because he did some film breakdown uh, that I, I watched and Nick watched of Ohio State's defense. And, like, I don't want to say that's not an Ohio State defense. I don't – I want to say that's not a – top 30 defense in college football like yes on one hand you know bill Connolly said ohio state's postgame win expectancy was 59 percent because their success rate was better more scoring opportunities those sorts of things but ultimately what i think this game just came down to was i'll say three things i'll say three things altogether one oregon just did not make mistakes uh, four penalties for 35 yards, no turnovers. Ohio State, eight penalties, 71 yards, one turnover. Ohio State was six of fi- six for 15 on third downs and two for five on second downs. Ohio State, and, and credit to Oregon for making them do this, Ohio State just did not have the juice that I think Oregon did, and it ended up killing them. Two was that Joe Moorhead's style of calling plays, as we all know, is he is going to look at what the defense gives him and goes, all right. And that Ohio State defense is not coached up yet. Maybe they won't be all season to a point where they can say, we will give you this because we want to take away this. And as a result... The thing we've seen with Ohio State so many times, like you look like you have something and then boom, Chase Young is there or boom, Josh Proctor is there or Jeff Okuda is there. One of those elite guys that they have on that defense are able to take care of it. Just right into what Joe Moorhead wants to do. And then three, you know, Nick mentioned the fact that this is a 
they're replacing so many guys. Well, you know who isn't replacing a ton of guys? That would be Oregon's front. And Oregon's offense, Oregon scored a touchdown by running the exact same play three times. That little run out to the left where they were pulling one or two offensive linemen from over to the right. And no one on Ohio State had any idea what to do. Like, I say all of that to say, one, Joe Moorhead, I, whatever beer you like, man, crack an extra one or two because you deserve it. Like, call the hell of a game. Mario Cristobal has done an incredible job. Uh, Mario Cristobal and whomever is uh, the offensive line coach at Oregon, terrific jobs coaching up that offensive line. But two, this Ohio State team is flawed. And when I think of how good this Penn State secondary is and can be, Nick, it's really hard for me to think that Penn State's going to just walk into Columbus on Halloween weekend and not have a chance. They, they can. I'm not saying they will. I might even put the odds at something like 70-30. It doesn't happen. They have a chance to beat Ohio State this year that I did not think they had two weeks ago. I said preseason when I wrote the preview for Ohio State for Rolandsor.com. I said that this, in my opinion, this was going to be the best chance Penn State has had to beat Ohio State since 2017. And I have only, that belief has only become firmer and firmer in my mind, like you said. Like this is, without it, this is the best Penn State defense I think we've seen in some time. It might be the best defense we've seen under James Franklin. This is probably the worst Ohio State defense we've seen since James Franklin got to Happy Valley. And the question is going to be which offense can attack the other one more successfully. And in that, now, as things stand right now, I would feel pretty good about Penn State at the very, very least putting up an incredibly difficult fight with the Buckeyes in Columbus. And considering it's in Columbus, that's about all. all, Considering it's in Columbus, that is what I want uh, without the expectation of a win. And then if they can win that football game, you know, especially if they beat Iowa, all bets are off. Like, all of a sudden, this Penn State team doesn't just look like a team that can compete in the Big Ten. This looks like a Penn State team that wins the Big Ten and goes to the playoff. But that's getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Like James Franklin likes to say 1-0 this week, and Penn State did end up going 1-0 this week, beating the Ball State Cardinals. Nick, any final thoughts before I end this podcast? No. Great game. Did exactly what they were supposed to do. Very happy. And I think I speak for Nick when I say Joe Moorhead. We love you. Do you agree? Love you, King. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. As always, make sure you are going onto your podcasting platform of choice and subscribing. If you use Apple Podcasts, go and leave us a five-star review. Make sure you're following us on all of our various social media channels. Nick's going to be doing a little more stuff on YouTube. So go over there in addition to Twitter, Facebook, everything else. Post-game, we're going to try and do some Twitter spaces throughout this season. Uh, Remains to be seen if we'll be able to do one this week. I hope we will to some capacity, but I'll be in Boston. I think, Nick, you're at the game? No, I wish. I'm just going to be at a friend's house. But it's actually, I I will 100% be able to host one while I'm there. I'll step outside. So, yeah, we'll do one. And uh, I will uh, hopefully join from a bar in Boston, Massachusetts. If you were going to the Penn State bar uh, in Boston, or if you live in Boston and want to go to Greatest Bar, which I believe is the Penn State bar, I'll be there. Let's have a good time. Uh, Make sure you're buying some shirts. We got a bunch in Matt's basement, and he would love to be able to send them to you. One last time, thank you very much for listening to this edition of Four Lions Radio. For Nick Pollock, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone. Peace.